This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Mark McKenna. Mark is a professor of history at the University of Sydney, and he's written a quarterly essay called Moment of Truth, History and Australia's Future. Mark argues that truth-telling about the past is essential and will be liberating and healing for all Australians. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs, and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. Yes, that is correct. And thanks to Gillian. Gillian was our guest last week. Uh, She came in to talk about the post-truth era and the decline of parliamentary democracy. But I have with me now another distinguished professor. Uh, His name is Mark McKenna and he works at the University of Sydney as an academic and a historian. And he's written several books, uh, including From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories, An Eye for Eternity, The Life of Manning Clark, which I picked up uh, at readings last year and also looking for Blackfellas Point and Australian history of place. Uh, he has written a lot about that particular topic and this uh, quarterly essay covers Indigenous Australian history, which is our history. It's Australian history. And the title of the quarterly essay, which is issue 69, is called Moment of Truth, History and Australia's Future. And Mark McKenna joins me now in the studio. Hi, Mark. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you in. And um, and really, this is an important quarterly essay. And mm. um, I, I have heard you talk about um, the reasons why you wrote this quarterly essay. And I think it's really important to start with that because mm-hmm. um, I guess that's the point of this uh, exercise. Sure. So, I mean, what was it that spurred you on? Because we've yeah. obviously had debates about uh, Australian history and the um, the statement from Uluru yeah. that yeah. came out yeah. and um, we've seen the response or mm. non-response from our yeah. politicians. So what led you to, I guess, revive and and bring back this a more in-depth discussion of this yeah, issue? Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose, you know, the starting point was clearly the, the Uluru Statement. Um, like, I found that... I think the Uluru Statement is one of the defining statements to come out of Indigenous Australia, to be put to the Parliament and people of Australia. In fact, if you go to Parliament House and you walk around the halls of Parliament House, the corridors, you'll see the Barunga statement from Bob Hawke uh, that, you know, that was uh, put to Hawke um, and you'll see the Yakala petitions and that's where the Uluru statement is going to end up. It's going to end up on the walls of Parliament House. But I, I, I felt that the Turnbull government and many others couldn't see, couldn't see the significance of this statement. So the starting point for me in writing the essay was the rejection of the Uluru Statement, and two reasons. Firstly, because, you know, the way it was rejected, right? So the fact that here was a here was a, a process that had come months and after months and months of dialogue and negotiation, it had come to um, the government. And instead of dignifying it with, you know, a prime ministerial address to the nation, which would have been appropriate after all, it was just rejected in the way that any other run-of-the-mill political issue might be dealt with a press release in the middle of the day. It was such a terrible way to, you know, 
to end that process or, or at least temporarily end it. I don't think it is ending it. Um, so, and, this, and the other thing was, of course, that it was rejected on the basis of spurious claims about it being a third chamber of parliament, which it clearly was not. So underlying all of that for me was a couple of things. Firstly, it showed that we couldn't or hadn't learnt how to negotiate with Indigenous Australians as equals. Secondly, um, it showed that underlying the underlying resistance in Australia to acknowledging the truth of the violent foundation of the country's settlement and invasion. And so we are still grappling with that. So there was, that was the starting point for me. And I guess combined with all that, you know, is, is the, the things that were happening just afterwards. Um, the Australia Day march in Melbourne, which was really quite an extraordinary event, I think, really groundbreaking. Um, and the debates over colonial statues and, you know, inscriptions. And so all of these debates were still often quite polarised. And so I wanted to ask whether we could find a way past that polarisation. And at the same time, I wanted to show the centrality of the Uluru Statement and the recognition of history to our future. So that's probably enough starting points. <laughs> yeah, there is. Well, uh, there is a lot to start with here. And, I mean, if we take a, a one sentence from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, which is quoted in this quarterly essay, it says, in 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. So that's obviously referencing the referendum in 1967. Yep. Um, have... Indigenous Australians really been heard from this with this statement by the broader population? That's a... I mean, I th being optimistic, I think that there is a large level of support out there for, for the spirit of this Uluru Statement. I really do think there's a strong level of support across all generations. So I'm not one... I don't actually see the government's response as being indicative of the community's re uh, response. That's one of the great failings, you know. So Turnbull comes out and says, oh, by the way, this will fail. This hasn't got a chance at a referendum. How, how dare he say that? How does he know? He claims to know because, you know, he, he lost the Republican referendum and therefore um, he claims that this would go down. It's, got nothing, it's a very different issue and so much has happened since 1999. So, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that failure to listen that failure to hear, that failure to see on the government's part. But despite all of that, I think that there's a strong level of community support for the Uluru Statement. And Turnbull recently, actually, you might remember that um, Bill Shorten came out and said, OK, we, we will allow an advisory body to run for a while. We'll trial it before we actually enshrine it, enshrine its existence in the Constitution, not its workings, its existence. Its, its workings would be subject to Parliament. So, but we'll trial this. And Turnbull said, uh-huh, you want to do that? Well, we'll make it an election issue. Now, of course, that rings alarm bells because it suggests the possibility of a race election. Um, so we, it's hard to say where it's going to go um, now, but I think that it looks like there's a chance that it will become an election issue. And then uh, the danger there is, of course, that it could become, uh, allow, you know, a lot of people with ulterior motives to to turn it into a, a race uh, election. 
That is concerning. And I think you make a great point in this quarterly essay that these issues come back and forward into focus during different news cycles when different activities are happening, committees, referendum council reports, and it's very hard to maintain a sustained dialogue about this topic. And I know last year when we were waiting for the Uluru Statement to come out, there was an intense period of maybe three or four weeks where people were speculating what's going to happen, what will people say. But that was probably the height of the discussion. Mm. And then, you know, the statement came out and it felt like there wasn't a huge amount of further um, exploration because it wasn't necessarily picked up with great vigour by Mm. our politicians. And, you know, Mm. obviously Bill Shorten um, has taken a bigger step forward than Malcolm Turnbull on this by saying that they would um, yeah, he's agree mo- he's to those. Yeah, he's moved a little bit since the Gama, the, you know, Gama yeah. he said uh, it would just go to another committee and it, and it has gone to another committee, which is due to report in November, another bipartisan committee. I think it's the fifth in five or six years. <laughs> They'll never run out of work, will they? Well, no, I mean, you know, what you were saying earlier is it points to the difficulty of getting traction, okay? It's so hard for... You know, Indigenous affairs often seems to lurch between crisis and invisibility. We're either in crisis or, or, or there's silence. And that's the great thing we have to overcome. Yeah, and I guess this is why this quarterly essay is so important because what I think is uh, critical is that it's rooted in history and it's really exploring the background and the important things that have happened before this point, the path that Indigenous Australians have taken advocating for themselves Mm. and pushing for these reforms themselves over so many years. And that's right. I mean, 1967 is the last significant constitutional change that's more than 50 years ago now and that points to the extraordinary patience of every i mean you know 50 years and still waiting for the next significant step so you know and and also when you think of the debates that we've gone through over the last five decades this is the end point i see hopefully of five decades of quite polarised and divisive debate over our history. In the 1980s, we had invasion or settlement, bicentenary. 1990s, whether we should apologise or not. 2000s, the history wars. Would we... uh, How do we count the number of dead on the the frontier? Um, And then, more recently, of course, um, you know, debates over colonial statues and Australia Day has been a long-running issue uh, for the last 30, 40 years, but now it seems to have reached a, a much more... Uh, you know, th- th- there's just simply more effort to resolve that issue. It's always been a matter of debate, but now things are starting to shift, I think. So this is something we've been grappling with for a long, long time, and we have to find a way through it. So one of the things that the Uluru Statement recommended, of course, and the Referendum Council report, which came out a few months afterwards, and this was, you know, this was, again, this was kind of not even uh, mentioned in the government's press release, right? One of the central recommendations was for a Makarata, a truth commission, which would do two things. It would supervise a truth-telling commission or commissions plural and it would supervise the signing of treaties and oversee the negotiation and signing of treaties. Absolutely nothing was said on the government's part about that. Just ignored it. And... It's significant that Labor has actually supported that now. So this this will be potentially an election issue. I mean, and I think we should make it one. Mm-hmm.
if, it, if, if the government doesn't want to make it one, we should make it one. Because I think that in, I mean, the same-sex marriage survey is often used <laughs> frequently as a comparison for all sorts of things. But I think it showed that the government, the government's way of handling these issues and its response is so out of step with, you know, that you had, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming and go through a ridiculous in the process in, uh, you know, of the same-sex, of the survey, yeah, to approve something that we already knew uh, what the, the community's, you know, response to. And, and in a way, I see this almost as a similar thing. So I think it should be an election issue and perhaps we need to have that struggle, we need to have that fight to sort out this once and for all. Mm, and to have a sustained fight, not just have this in and out discussion. That's right, that, exactly. Not to just sort of be either in crisis or, or, or not being heard at all. Exactly. And you do write in this quarterly essay that uh, historians have you know, had their opportunity to delve into the past. And more recently, we've had the History Wars, as you said, um, many books about frontier violence, um, such as Henry Reynolds, uh, and that debate around not only the numbers, but was it a massacre, ethnic cleansing, genocide, the kind of terms that we're using for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, what's really important, what you say is that uh, Indigenous Australians haven't had that proper opportunity in a sustained, public, um, you know, respected way to be able to give their evidence, to tell their stories um, together and in a unifying process. It's not about being divisive. And you um, talk about Inga Clendinen, who explained in 2009 that the purpose of truth-telling is not to, quote, wring our hands over past brutalities and injustices, uh, end quote, but in Australia's case to understand how punitive expeditions, which were often composed of a majority of Aboriginal native police, were sent out and did their work. Yeah. There's a lot of complexity yes. to the yeah, history yeah. No, it's of... it's not a two-sided frontier. Exactly. As you know, you know um, it is not a two-sided front. It's a very, very murky entangled sort of terrain, the frontier. And that's something I think that we haven't really understood either before. Aboriginal people in the Referendum Council report said over and over again that they had heard historians speak. Now they wanted to tell this history as that they have experienced it and their parents and their grandparents. And that that would be on an international arena quite a cathartic and quite potentially in f- educational thing for all Australians and it would I think help us to break through some of the to understand that complexity you're talking about and to break through some of that polarization Exactly. And I guess when it isn't so cut and dry, that is where there's room for people to politicise issues and capitalise on confusion. Um, And it certainly isn't uh, really clear what has happened. But obviously that's partially the role of historians, but also the role of oral history from people themselves, Indigenous Australians, who do pass these stories Stories and experiences on. on. And they're highly accurate um, because we know that their oral history Mm. was their prime mode of telling stories and recording what has happened, whereas obviously colonial Australians were writing it down. Mm. Um, As they often say, it's their library. Exactly. it's, It's their history book. 
Exactly. And that kind of understanding, I think we need to stop applying our own standards to their history. Yes, we have to appreciate that. We live in a country with two ways of knowing the past, different ways of understanding and knowing the past. That's that's yet another reason to have a truth-telling commission, I think. So um, there's on, on all sorts of levels... The, you know, this comes back to your original point about we haven't f- listened, we haven't heard, we haven't seen what's being asked of us. And if we really read that statement carefully and looked at the Referendum Council's report, I mean, you know, that was the other thing. If you, look, if you read that report, you can see how little of it was actually quoted in the reporting of the issue. You know, I, I think we need to go back to that report and read it closely. Um, so... Yeah, it's, that's absolutely true. And I think um, there's a quote at the top of uh, this essay, which is from Galloway Unipingu, and oh, yeah. uh, it's, what a gift this is that we can give you if you choose to accept us in a meaningful way. And I think that, to me, has summarised my thoughts on it because we have these processes where, uh, and as you write, we recognise uh, Indigenous Australians as being the first owners of this land, but we don't don't really go a whole lot further than that no, in our no. understanding of their knowledge and yep. their culture and, mm-hmm. and what they could give to us in science, in the environment. Yep. There's so many fields um, of understanding that we don't share mm. that um, isn't being fully appreciated and it should be a source of national pride and unity, this yes. kind of history that we are lucky to have with us still. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I guess... I think that it's a really great positive that you're also bringing out in this quarterly essay is celebrating and highlighting just how much of a positive experience, uh, reconciliation, recognition, truth telling, all of this could yeah, be. Yeah, that, that it can actually be productive. Yeah. You know, that it can that it can be liberating. Not that we shouldn't see it as being weighed, weighing us down potentially. So that's a. I think we have been fearful of recognising the violent foundation of, of our country's history because we're not, we, we think we've probably made the mistake that it means that we'll condemn, that will mean that we'll condemn everything about the country, that it'll become irredeemable, um, illegitimate. Um, but it, it's actually paradoxical in a sense that only by acknowledging that past will we be able to see you know, if you look at the apology and, and many um, formal recognitions of history, people often say, oh, we should do this and move on. But actually, what we have to do is to acknowledge the history and bring it with us. Not When people say move on, I worry that they mean turn away again, forget. Yeah? Say it once and then forget it. No. We have to understand how it's produced the country that we are today. That's the difficult part. That's the challenge. So if we look back, um, you know, just back to where you started, um, if you look back to the 1990s when both the recon- reconciliation, it was, as it was then called, and the Republic started in 1991, they were primarily both two movements centred on symbolic change. And one of the big things that's happened since the 1990s, I think, is that that kind of appetite for purely symbolic change has, has sort of... Now that's now seen as not being enough, not sufficient. Part of the big message of the Uluru, the drafters of the Uluru Statement was we, we want more than symbolic change. We want substantive structural reform. We want you, the state, to change the way that you negotiate with us about the policies 
uh, that you make that govern, you know, and set that govern our lives. So that is a big shift from the 1990s to now. And so there's a, there's a definitive statement, we don't want only, we want more than symbolic change. And, and we, have, we haven't heard that either, I don't think. No. And I think um, people, some people, particularly the politicians, have been spooked by the idea that it is real change because that requires a lot of political courage on their part. Perhaps yes. they're perceiving that it requires more courage than is actually involved. But yep. one of the things um, that you refer to and you question is this whole politicisation and um, ideology around creating a third uh, body or mm. parliament or yep. branch um, mm. that is an advisory body. It's not even a decision-making mm. body. No. It's to advise yep. the parliament on legislation. And uh, the Referendum Council explicitly stated the body would only consider legislation that fell under the constitutional powers regarding race and territories. Mm. So this is something that should be quite yeah. uncontroversial. Yeah, it was a false claim on the government's part, a false claim. Completely. To, to claim it was a third potential third chamber of parliament. You know, when you ask yourself, well, why did they say that? The only explanation I can come up with is that they were actually fearful. I mean, if you think about the visual, the visual effect of an advisory body, turning on our television screens or looking online and seeing a group of Indigenous leaders sitting around a table, an advisory body, you know... <laughs> That would be a, that just visually that, that that would be a big shift in the way we we perceive how indigenous legislation is framed. Now I think they were kind of fearful of that. They're so accustomed to what they call parliamentary the supremacy of parliament that they haven't heard again. They haven't heard that what's being asked of them is that they have to broaden and shift their definition of their own superiority. Um, and start to genuinely engage with Aboriginal people as equals. And I suppose at another level, I think they didn't understand the unique status of Indigenous, didn't accept yeah, the unique status of Indigenous people. The, the constant sort of refrain was, look, we're all equal, right? <laughs> yeah, which we're all equal now, but of course there's a clearly certain not. history. <laughs> there's a certain, or clearly not, but also there's a certain history behind. So, uh, you know, th there's a failure at that level to understand the historical, the way in which history has produced, has led to the position that Indigenous Australians are in now. I mean, they live history every day. It's not something that they leave behind or pick up and drop off when, when it suits them. So there's so, there's conceptually, you know, there's so much more distance to travel on the part of our government to understand those kinds of things. Yeah, so fear was a big thing, I think, mm. in that rejection. It's um, it's almost a fear of ceding some kind of power that they think they're giving that's right. away. Yeah, yeah, like they didn't put it in precisely those words, but I think that's kind of what explained their their, their response to it, that, that fear of uh, that they might actually have to sit down and, and genuinely deal with an Indigenous uh, body that was elected, you know. Mm. Um, that was too much for them. 
<laughs> and yet they negotiate every day with each other uh, behind cor- closed doors and in the corridors of parliament. Um, you know, that that's a, a practice. And although we often don't see bipartisanship, mm. they do have a lot of um, negotiation and horse trading and yes. compromise making. They do. They do. And also we should remember that in the public service, uh, there are many uh, departments where it's obligatory to consult with Indigenous bodies before... Uh, legislation is drafted or or recommendations are made. So it's already there in in some ways, but what is being asked of the government is that it's actually formalised and, you know, that that I think is what we have to discuss in in the election or potentially before the election, I hope. I hope that, um, you know, the SA in some small way will will encourage... uh, uh, the discussion to get started again. Mm. And you do um, talk about something that a philosopher, Raymond Gator, has reflected on and uh, and you say that he explained, if we are to avoid jingoism, our love of country must be reflective and critical. And I mm. think um, the Anzac Day story and the history around it and um, the kind of obsession that uh, our government has with commemorating it um, is one example of where we can uh, have our past in our present yep. and constantly be reflecting back on how that has affected Australia. Mm. But uh, we cannot do that to the same extent with uh, issues like the frontier violence that was no. experienced mm. and, you know, the uh, so-called settlement where we've taken lands that uh, Aboriginal people haven't actually and, ceded. And, and we don't have in Australia a state-sanctioned memorial to those people who died on the frontier. We have not acknowledged that formally. Uh, and that that is uh, another you know absence in our national sort of imaginary. Um, but yeah, Anzac Day. I'm glad you mentioned that <laughs> because you know one of the things I guess I'm trying to do in the essay, uh, underlying it all, is an attempt to show that the central, the heart of Australian history, is Indigenous Australia and the encounter between those who came afterwards. That is the heart of Australian history. When you look at Anzac Day, you have to ask yourself, okay, which other nation in the world has invented a myth of national birth that takes place 16,000 kilometres offshore, not on its own soil, but way over there in Turkey? Now, why have we Mm. done that? Why have we done it? Well, I think part of the reason is that we didn't work through the real issues about the history on our own soil and we turned away from that and we rushed to embrace this myth of national birth through a very tradi- you know a very traditional way spilling blood on in bat- on the battlefield and we turned away from the frontier we turned away from the history on our own soil and the republic is another example you know australian republicans have imagined that they could prosecute the argument for a public. Imagine a republic which said nothing about Indigenous Australia, that somehow our independence was all tied up with the British royal family and, uh, you know, severing our last ties with, with Britain. That's over. It's not really important anymore, although it still hovers around. Mm. The reasons to become a republic are not anything to do ironically, with uh, the monarchy, they're actually to do with why 
with our own society and what a republic might offer. Yeah. And, and you can't think about replacing the sovereignty of the Crown unless you think about Indigenous Australia. Mm. So these two things, which we've always thought of as being separate, are actually connected. And we're starting to see a shift. You know, there's been some positive signs. Uh, Bill Shorten has actually said that um, recognition should take place first before the Republic. And I think that's... That's a great thing because it should. We shouldn't even think about a republic until we first address this issue. Well, it is, it's a process of recreation and re-establishing what it is to be Australia as an independent nation away from our colonial past, but not yeah. necessarily forgetting our colonial past, but being informed by it mm. and not forgetting or no. ignoring it. And when you, that's right. And, and, you know, when you think of that wor- word you used, patriot, patriotism, Right, which can, of course is dangerous in a sense because sometimes it can turn into jingoism. But the real source of patriotism in Australia, for me at least, you know, is one that grapples with, engages with, thinks about the importance of the land, the country itself, our Indigenous history and place. It's got nothing to do with feeling more proud of myself as an Australian because uh, Prince Charles will not be be my head of state. I mean, okay, you know, it's really... All of that that British legacy is gone and the real question, I think, in terms of patriotism... You know, when Malcolm Turnbull became a Republican, he says, he tells us, it was 1988, he was watching Prince Charles deliver the main speech at Sydney Cove and he was offended... Prince Charles delivering the main speech. But what else was taking place that day? People were marching about Invasion Day. And that's what I mean about patriotism. It's much more than just that old relationship with England. It's actually about looking inside the history of this country. That's what patriotism's about to me, Mm. anyway. I couldn't agree more, and that's why we should all be patriots and read the whole quarterly essay. Well, well, that's great. (laughs) Yeah, it is true, though, because I think it's a discussion that is nuanced and you're taking a Mm big-picture look and a survey, really, across this issue, and I think that is what has been missing as we've looked at it in bits and for different uh, issues, and this is bringing them all together. Thanks. I'm glad you Mm. see it that way because that's one of the things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to actually see these things whole rather than just in their, you know, separate parts. Mm, so I think that you've drawn some really important connections that people are missing and that Thanks, we really Amy. need to maintain those connections and reinforce through our reporting and our public debate. So I really do appreciate you writing this. Oh, well, um, thank you. Yeah, it's, it is really excellent and I'm not just saying that. So I hope everyone can actually read this quarterly essay. It's um, number 69 in uh, the issue and it's called Moment of Truth, History and Australia's Future and um, it's by Mark McKenna. So thank you, Mark, very thank, much for coming in. Thanks very much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. And that was Mark McKenna, who is a historian and professor at the University of Sydney, the author of many books and is a leading historian here. Um, So please do check it out. Uh, All those links will be on our social media and you can listen back to this interview later today on our podcast and on SoundCloud. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. 
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.